Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books interview podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview both fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Ivy Lin was a thief, but you would never know it to look at her. That's the opening line of White Ivy, the debut novel by Susie Yang. Ivy is a Chinese-American teenager growing up just outside of Boston, where she struggles to achieve the trappings of suburban teenagerhood. Years later, as a 27-year-old teacher haunted by confused feelings about her upbringing, she comes across characters from her past, which spurs a desire, perhaps an obsessive one, to remake her life. White Ivy has won rave reviews and recommendations from book publications over the past few months. Before turning to writing, Susie Yang originally launched a tech startup that taught 20,000 people how to code. She then studied creative writing at Tin House and Sackett Street. She was born in China, came to the United States as a child, and now resides in the UK. Today, Susie and I will discuss White Ivy's main character, Ivy Lin, and its setting in New England. We'll delve into how Ivy's Chinese heritage interacts with the story and how it leads to important observations about wealth and gender. We'll also discuss the idea of immigrant fiction. Is it a label that helps or hurts up-and-coming writers? So, Susie, perhaps it's best to start with White Ivy's main character, Ivy Lin. How would you describe her attitude towards life? How does she relate to her family and to other characters in the novel? Um, so Ivy's attitude toward life, I would say, is that she's incredibly striving and aspirational. Um, I think ever since she was a child, She's always felt like an outsider in her very, you know, white um, prep school community. And so that sort of seeded the motivations she had to, you know, get this higher life belonging that she's aspired to. And I think it's that thread of ambition that runs through the novel and kind of prompts her to make the decisions um, that she does later on in life. And I think a lot of those desires come from her family, you know, whether that's in direct, um, you know, whether it's that she's repelled by what her family wants and she thinks, I don't want to be, you know, like my parents or I don't want to adopt my family's values. But then, you know, as she grows up, I think she starts to see overlaps between her own desires and values and those of her, you know, and her mother and her grandmother. And so in a way, um, Ivy comes full circle in, in that sense. So I think family and culture, all those things are such um, foundational uh, points for Ivy's um, ambitions throughout her life. So. Ivy is Chinese-American. I mean, technically, I think first generation, because in the book, she moves to the United States as a very young age. How did you integrate Ivy's Chinese heritage into the story? How does it affect her character development, if it does very much at all? I think the main way it affects her is 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 her feeling of otherness. Um, it, you know, it could have been, I think there's so many ways in which, you know, anyone feels, oh, I don't belong in this situation, or you know, I don't fit in. And I think for Ivy, as all immigrants do in America, there is that semblance of cultural, you know, the, the culture aspect of not fitting in. Um, her parents, you know, aren't like her classmates' parents. And there's the class discrepancy as well. So I think, to me, the idea to 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 kind of give Ivy that background really is because it's my background. It's what I'm familiar with. Um, and it really was just to show how the circumstances of her being different from the people around her, um, how that shapes her desire to, you know, to want more out of life. It's, it's great how you mention your, your own personal background. I guess, you know, how did you leverage your own personal experiences in developing Ivy's story? 
Yeah, I think it's because I'm a person. I'm a, I'm a writer that doesn't enjoy research. <laughs> so, um, you know, I played around with different different characters. But to me, it felt really natural to give Ivy to kind of seed her background with details that were really similar to my own. So I was also born in China and I came to the U.S. when I was five. And, you know, I kind of gave Ivy that that detail. Actually, I think during one of the drafts, I, I cut that part out and my agent said, oh, that's actually a really interesting detail that could inform Ivy's relationship with her with her parents. And so I kind of put that back in. So really, it was just, um, you know, a book has to be very specific. Otherwise, you know, the characters don't feel real. So for me, it was really drawing on the detail that I observe, you know, in the Chinese American culture, um, particularly in the section of the book where Ivy returns back to China. Um, you know, I, because even though I was born in China, I didn't go back until I was in high school. And that feeling of culture shock, um, and, you know, meeting relatives that, I don't remember for the first time, I definitely drew upon a lot of those details um, for that section of the book. So it was really seeding, you know, seeding those details of Ivy's background to make her a fully fleshed out character. I wonder if you could actually talk a bit more about about uh, the trip to China, both, I guess, for yourself, but also as it as it's used in the book. It's kind of the the transition, you can say, from act one to act two. Um, it's not, I know that's not quite how right. the story develops, but it, it's a bit, but it is a big shift in the in the beginning. So I guess could I ask you to talk a bit more about first of all, you know, how you dealt with the with any trips back to China and then how you worked that into Ivy's character development in the novel. Yeah, it was really I, I think when I decided to write, you know, to have that section come in the book, it was really out of nostalgia. Um, like I said, I went to um, I, I visited China for the first time after moving to the US when I was in high school. But since then um, you know, I still have grandparents who live there. I have family. So I'll go back and visit every, I would say, few years. Um, as an adult, it's been maybe once a year I try to go. So, you know, those trips are such great memories for me. And it feels so different from, you know, my life in the States. And I think all, you know, Chinese American, you know, first generation or second generation kids can feel that way. Um, and so when I decided to write that scene, for White Ivy, it was really out of nostalgia and a sense of wanting to incorporate those um, emotions and those ev evocative scenes of, you know, seeing your relatives or seeing just how different and frenetic China was compared to, you know, the American suburbs. Um, so when I wrote those scenes, I thought, you know, Ivy is kind of experiment is going through an education of sorts, you know, it's when she's transitioning from when she's a child, and now she's learning about wealth, and she's learning about the greater world. And I thought, what a interesting way to juxtapose both her first experience to wealth in the form of a wealthy aunt she meets in China, but also to her culture, which she, I think, up to that point had never really um, been able to understand. And so it was really combining all those factors and having that section of the book be a, a huge learning experience for Ivy, um, both in class and in culture. Yeah, what, what I found really interesting about, about this trip and it, this, this is kind of relevant for, for, for me looking at this book from Asia. Um, it seems like during the trip, there's a feeling that Ivy finds it easier to achieve the trappings of, you know, well-to-do uh, teenagerhood in China than she does in the United States because uh, her wealthy aunt is bringing her around and buying her all of this designer stuff. Yep. But this seems to be a reversal of most, you know, quote-unquote immigrant narratives when they return to the home country where either – the home country is still destitute, or or they're bringing wealth back to to the mm. to the host country. I mean, that's how immigrant narratives are traditionally presented. Uh, mm. Even though I know that's a stereotype in itself, and so it's just it, 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 this just seems 
the way that this is done in, in White Ivy to me is quite seemed seemed quite different and perhaps unique when talking about Chinese immigrants and Chinese American immigrants going back to mainland China. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting you said that because I definitely wanted to show both sides of China. I think China's a mm. really disparate place. You know, there is, there's such a huge discrepancy between, you know, wealth and poverty. And I wanted to show that in a way. Um, I actually even had a scene that I think I, it got cut for, for the final novel, but essentially Ivy is um, kind of presented with the opportunity, you know, does she want to maybe come back or go to school here, or she's trying to imagine her life if she didn't go back to the US, just very briefly. And I wanted that to almost be a sense of, you know, Ivy is choosing not just, it's, you know, it's the material trappings, but that's not all she cares about. You know, if she, it's like you said, if she just wanted to sort of be wealthy or to, you know, accumulate um, nice things, then she, she can have that in China. But you know, for her, it's not just about money. Um, there's a line in the book where she thinks um, that there's a difference between wealth and money. And I think that's the lesson I wanted her to learn there that it's, you know, that there's things that, that are beyond just materialistic things. And so she actually decides, I think, from, from that summer that she's an American teenager, you know, so for her, it really was, um, you know, seeing the different parts of her identity and sort of deciding to move forward with one. Um, so that was a really deliberate part um, on my end, I didn't just want to portray, you know, China as this place that was horrible and she couldn't get anything out of it. I think it's a lot more nuanced than that in real life as well. Um, so obviously most of the book takes place um, in New England, you know, suburbs of Boston, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, what was interesting about this particular location vis-a-vis -vis the United States in general? Well, it, for a while, I thought, you know, I've lived in and out of New York. And so I thought, let me set it in New York, um, because it's, you know, familiar. But then I thought there's so many stories about that kind of, um, you know, wealthy elite in New York. And I thought, I think there's something very specific about the Speyer family that felt very New England to me, you know, it's sort of that um, politicians family, but also, you know, the wasp culture. Um, and, you know, my husband, he went to school in Boston, so I would visit him a lot in college for four years. And there's just that mood, I think, of the New England area that feels a little bit more like patrician. <laughs> so I thought um, I made the decision to set it in Boston because of the Spire family. It sort of felt more um, appropriate to their kind of aesthetic. Well, I mean, as, as you note, it's, it's the difference between, between money and wealth that, that Ivy kind of grasps at in the novel. Yeah, it does feel like there's a certain, I don't know, like old, like, you know, the culture isn't just, um, you know, make as much money as, as you can and show that off. It, def it definitely feels more steeped in culture, even if that is a stereotype. But I, I think the New England, um, you know, the, the preppy stereotype of like Ivy Leagues and also just old families, um, that, that I think is such a, to me at least, it feels very New England to me. So looking a bit more, a bit more broadly at, at the whole novel, um, you know, one of the things that pops up again and again throughout the novel seem to be the, the lies member of, of a family tell themselves. Um, it may be, or lies or misperceptions. Um, obviously, Ivy has no real idea about what her parents are actually doing. That's actually a, a plot point later in the, in, in the novel. Um, both her mother, Nan, and her grandmother, Mei Feng, have very different um, understandings of family dynamics. Um, even the Spayers themselves uh, lie to each other. Um, I wondered if you might talk a bit more about, about those kinds of family dynamics. 
Yeah, I'm really obsessed with the idea of the lies that we tell ourselves, um, even more so than the lies that we tell other people, because I think those are conscious, you know, you understand that you're lying. But it really is just the lies that, you know, Ivy tells herself, um, and other characters tell themselves that I find really fascinating. Um, And I think it's just a matter of, of needing to believe something, you know, needing to believe in the identity of who you are. Um, I think one of the pleasures for me of writing this novel is to show, you know, what is to have have everybody in the novel have their own agendas, but then there's what they're they're you know able to show other people. So so much of the book is Ivy trying to understand uh, what people's intentions are, even you know from her from her mom to to Gideon and Gideon's family, and then what her own agendas are. And it's really trying to piece together. You know, are people lying to her deliberately? <laughs> are they tr- deliberately trying to misrepresent themselves, or are those things just so you know a part of everybody's demeanor and mannerisms that even they don't don't know how they're portraying themselves. Um, so it's like the, kind of the, the multiple layers of identity and identity politics um, that I think is really fascinating. And because the book is all told through Ivy's point of view, I think it's even unclear now, even to me as the author, how much of, you know, other people's um, misrepresentations are deliberate. You know, do they mean, you know, do the, do the spires deliberately mean to, you know, portray themselves as a certain type of family to Ivy? Or are those just the perceptions that she herself assumed because of her own, you know, prejudices and beliefs? So I think it's, it's very murky. Um, and I, and I, and, and I purposely left it that way because I think those, I think that's the fascinating part of, of identity politics. Well, that's right. And, and of course, I think we're all, we're all guilty of, overthinking and second guessing how other people are acting yeah. towards us. Um, but I also, I want to, I want to talk now about, about gender in the novel. Um, now white Ivy, I think centers around, around its, its, its women characters, obviously Ivy, but also her mother and grandmother, Nan and Mei Feng, also the character of Sylvia Spare. And even I think Ivy's roommate, Andrea later in the book, I think all have shades of this. And Ivy seems to spend a lot of the book commenting and analyzing how each character is leveraging um, is leveraging their identity um, mm. to suit to suit certain purposes or to make certain statements. Um, I wonder if you might if you might talk a bit about how you approached um, these sorts of ideas and these sorts of um, concepts in, in 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 developing and writing the novel. Yeah, I love that phrase actually, leveraging your identity because. Um, uh, yeah, I think that really, that really aptly describes what Ivy tries to do. Um, and I think maybe, you know, if the other characters do it, I think it must be unconscious on my part. I don't think I set out to say, oh, you know, these are the ways in which all these characters and these women are going to leverage their identity or, you know, their their, their backgrounds. But probably it naturally came off because I feel like so much of Ivy so much of her desires are based around what other people want. You know, she's constantly, she's really impressionable. So she's always trying to draw other people's values and sort of adopt them as her own. And so much of doing that is observing other women and saying, oh, what is that person doing? You know, how are they getting ahead in life? Or how are they better than me? Um, And because she's observing that, I think she would naturally see the ways that other women, you know, try to portray themselves as, you know, powerful women or trying to portray themselves as, um, you know, smart or intelligent. And honestly, it probably goes back to our generation and kind of the digital age. You know, everybody is so conscious of, um, you know, p- promoting themselves in a certain way or needing to, um, 
you know, be like, stand out and stand out and say, you know, this is who I am and trying to appear authentic, but at the same time being really aware of how they're portraying themselves. So it was really just that hyper awareness, I think, of human mannerisms that probably gives the character, all the women characters in the book, that sense of maybe they're controlling or manipulating things, even though, you know, when I was writing it, I definitely didn't, you know, sit down and think, oh, this, these, these are the ways that they're trying to manipulate um, other people's view of them. Well, it's also true, as, as you noted earlier, that, that the whole book is being portrayed through Ivy's perspective. So if, this is maybe how Ivy sees um, how all these characters are acting. But yeah. in, in truth, they're not. This is, these, are, these are her overthinking it or second guessing it or trying to apply her own understandings yeah. um, of the world. Um, I guess we, I'd be remiss to not mention um, the male characters of, of the male characters of the book, especially the, the two men from her from her past. Um, Gideon and and Rue and I guess I guess as as you were developing those characters, how did you see them contrasting and, and comparing with each other? Um, yeah, it was exactly that. Actually, I developed the characters to be foils for each other. So um, I think the I mean the character of Gideon came first, um, just as the representation of Ivy's aspirational life. Um, I think we've all known, like I think every girl in America has their own version of the Gideon, um, whether that's you know, whatever that represents to them. But, and I think the point was that it's not so much that Gideon is special in any way. It's more that he's special to Ivy because they have that childhood bond. And then directly in opposition to Gideon, I thought of the character Rue, somebody who would understand, you know, the parts of Ivy that she wants to conceal from people like Gideon and from the outer world. Um, and as they grow up and, you know, reconnect, it was really these two men that, um, kind of represent different ideas to Ivy of love and of wealth and of class. And she's constantly using them to bounce her own ideas of what she wants out of life. You know, does she want somebody who adores her? Does she want, you know, easy money? Or does she want, you know, a more glamorous, a more, um, you know, seemingly, you know, picturesque type of life? So she's really just using these two men as reflections to, to question her own identity and to question what, what type of life she's going for. So in a way, I, I really think Ivy doesn't understand the men in her life. Like even beyond getting in root, I don't think she understands her brother. She doesn't understand her dad. I think she sees men as very, she sees men as almost avenues of, you know, of just different reflections of what, of what she wants from life. And I, and because of that, I think she misunderstands, um, Gideon and Rue to her, to her own detriment, um, which, you know, is clear at the end of the book. So again, I think talking, talking broadly about, about white Ivy, um, I think as you say, you know, Ivy, Ivy's family is, is Chinese. Um, you know, it refers back to stories in, in China, um, and Chinese culture, I think plays a role in how her family sees these dynamics. Um, she's, Whereas the Spayers, I think, are your are your go to like waspy New England patrician family. Um, I guess how do you see again? Like I guess in some ways, do you, do you see those two? I guess family styles, family cultures, as foils to each other, or how do they? I I, I guess how do you see those two family cultures interacting? Kind of mm. kind of the the Chinese side and the more waspy New England side. Yeah, I mean, I think it's less about the specificities of being Chinese or being, you know, waspy family and just more about not understanding each other. And also about, you know, for Ivy in particular, about navigating both worlds, which she, you know, she's familiar with both of them. And I think this this is a viewpoint that all immigrants um, 
have, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Chinese American or Turkish American, whatever you, you understand, you know, there's your, there's the culture of your, your, you know, your parents, your ancestors, and then there's the culture of America. And so it really is just that almost like leading a double life. You know, you, you, you're one person in school, you're another person when you get home. And so to me, it was really, it's just like what you said, it's like the foil of showing that Ivy belongs in two different worlds. And it could have easily been a very different world. You know, if the story, if I decided to set the story in San Francisco or, you know, or Hong Kong, wherever, you know, the the Spires would have been a different family. But to me, it was less important that it was, you know, the Swasby Patrician family. I mean, that, that detail served the story only in so far as that, that sort of, like you said, a a subset of privilege in America, you know, it's like a very stereotypical, you know, idea of wealth and money and privilege uh, in in America. And so that was why I decided to create the Spires the way that I did. But um, in terms of, you know, the narrative, um, the, like momentum, it was really just to show the, the the double worlds that Ivy inhabits, and it could have been, you know, it could have been different cultures. But I think, it, yeah, I think everybody has that experience to, to 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 juggle multiple identities, and that was that was really the motivation for that. So I think I like to talk a bit about um, your process for for writing this novel, and because I know your I know your background is originally in tech. Um, and I guess the people, some people may call this a quote unquote career pivot away from tech into creative writing. Um, but I guess, you know, this is, this is, this is your first novel. And so how did you find the process of writing, of writing White Ivy? Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've been writing for fun my whole life, you know, ever since I can remember, I've been a huge bookworm and I've been scribbling stories and, you know, writing, writing my journal. And so, um, I actually went to pharmacy school before I even worked in tech. So you could even say this is my third career pivot. Um, I did six years of pharmacy school, but halfway through my program, I you know hated it and thought, okay, I need to do something else once I graduate. But I was too far along in the program to 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 drop out. So I thought, let me just get my degree. And then I decided to work in tech, which felt you know still like a very normal career for you know for for somebody who thought that I would you know just kind of get a job and work, but. Um, I think when I was around like 26, 27, I sort of, I call it my quarter life crisis. Um, it felt like the urge to see if I could make it as a professional author really just became sort of unbearable. Um, like I said, I've been writing, but I never finished a novel. And so at that point, I'd been running my startup for around three years. And so it was at a point where I could take a year um, and just let the, you know, let the startup run on its own and maintain it, but devote that time to finish a book. Um, and so it was essentially me putting my back against the wall. I thought if I can't, you know, finish a novel within this year, then I'll just have to kill the stream. Um, so let me see if I can do it. And then that, that year long deadline I gave myself, what I wrote then became White Ivy. Um, and then, and then everything after that, like just happened very quickly. You know, I found my agent at a writer's, I met my agent at a writer's conference called Tin House. Um, and then she signed me in October and we sold the manuscript in December. So um, everything after that happened relatively quickly, but it was really just giving myself that hard deadline of a year to finish the book that um, that kind of <laughs> made that kind of produced this this novel. So I think I'd like to I'd like to end this conversation by talking about I guess there seems to be a growing category of fiction involving immigrants, I think especially Asian American immigrants recently navigating uh, the path of growing up in the United States. Um, and sometimes I think this, this could be characterized as, you know, quote unquote, immigrant fiction. Um, but do you think categorizing this, this body of work in this way, do you think it helps up and coming writers in the United States or does it hinder them by putting them into a box? 
actually, I haven't heard that term immigrant fiction. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I, I do see that there is a growing body of Asian American writers, but I mean, the ones that I've read, um, I'm just thinking from the top of my head, I, I feel like it's less about the immigrant experience and more, um, uh, you know, it could be a thriller or I'm thinking, or like, I'm thinking of Min Jin Lee or R.O. Kwan, where they, t- where they talk about religion or Celeste Ng, where they talk about, you know, kind of racial dynamics in the suburbs. So to me, I feel like their stories are actually like less about the immigrant experience, um, but more about just, I don't know, universal topics, but it's just that they happen to maybe, you know, showcase characters who happen to be Chinese American immigrants or Asian immigrants. Um, so I, yeah, I, I'm actually unfamiliar with that term. Um, if people do label, label books like that, um, I guess it's okay. I mean, I haven't heard of it, so I don't feel like I'm inundated with that label. I feel like it's a fair thing to say that it's an immigrant story. I certainly describe White Ivy as an immigrant story. So um, I don't feel like it's limiting as of yet because I haven't, you know, been inundated with that, with that phrase yet. Well, I think it's, 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 a, it's useful to ask because, you know, sometimes, sometimes books get attached with certain labels, much to the chagrin of their authors. Um, this has definitely been true for people who write, let's say, the other side of this, which is quote-unquote expat fiction. I've definitely talked to some authors oh, wow. who, who are... I haven't even heard are, of that term either. Wow. Well, that's that's a thing that that that, that pops up more out here in Asia. Um, so I guess, I mean, maybe to loop back to, to um, what it's been like to write this book. I mean, you know, obviously White Ivy's gotten a lot of praise, has gotten a lot of buzz. Um, I guess, how are you feeling about, about the reception to, to White Ivy that, that you've seen in, in book review publications and other publications? How, how are you feeling about the attention it's got? Uh, I mean, I feel really, I mean, really lucky because this year has been crazy for everybody and particularly for debut authors. It's, I remember back in March, you know, all these books were coming out and everybody's publications were getting pushed because of the lockdowns. So it felt completely, it just felt everything is out of, out of your control. And I think I've just taking that attitude throughout the whole year. It, it didn't feel like, you know, whether it's the praise or the reviews, it doesn't feel like I did anything to cause either the positive ones or the negative ones or any of it. So just trying to take it all in stride. And um, yeah, just feeling really lucky and not taking any of it for granted, especially this year. Okay. And I think with that, um, thanks again for everyone to listening in to our interview with Susie Yang, author of White Ivy. Susie, uh, I guess a few final questions. Um, first of all, where can people where can people find your work, um, and uh, what are you what are you doing next? Um, where can people find my work in the sense of um, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, well, I guess first of all, either either where can they find more information about White Ivy, and then maybe your other work that 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 you might that you might have done in the past. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, you can go into my website at suzybooks.com. Um, and in, in terms of what I'm working on next, I'm around, I would say, two thirds into the first draft of my second novel. Um, and it's it's a love story that takes place over 10 years, um, also set between the US and China. And it follows a character as he tries to gain fame within the Chinese entertainment industry. So I, I mean, it tackles similar topics of, you know, identity politics, and it takes on that outsider perspective of somebody looking into a world that's very unfamiliar to them and trying to navigate, you know, their sense of belonging and, um, you know, again, the, the, the striving aspect of that. So. <laughs> so you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's 
N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Susie, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on, Nick.